Hi, I'm Bill Crystal. Welcome back to Conversations. I'm very pleased and really honored to be joined today by Tom Tukenhat, a member of parliament uh, in the United Kingdom from the wonderfully named uh, constituency of Toonbridge and Mauling. Did I protect, did I pronounce that correctly? I, I doubt it. Tunbridge and Tunbridge. Tunbridge. What was I thinking? Tunbridge, you know. It looks like Tunbridge, so I figured it couldn't be pronounced Tunbridge, you know, because it's just anyway, it's Kent, I believe. And um uh, Tom has been in the parliament, been a conservative member, Tory member since 2015, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee uh of the House of Commons, which uh, has been which you've used as a real uh not just a bully pulpit, but really a place to help shape policy, I think. And um, before that, very involved in foreign affairs, foreign policy debates. That's how we met. Served in the British Army in Iraq and Afghanistan and really gave a wonderful speech people should go back and look at almost a year ago. I was thinking about this, which is we're two weeks on from a year uh, on the uh, our pullout from Afghanistan and a very moving speech really on the floor of the house. Anyway, Tom, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Bill, it's good to be with you again. I should also have mentioned Tom was a candidate for uh, Tory party leadership, which would in turn make one prime minister and did better than everyone expected, but was eliminated in one of those rounds. It's such a complicated system. I'm not even sure how that worked, but it seems to me you made it a round or two longer than everyone expected. And, uh, I made it several rounds longer than anybody expected. <laughs> okay, well, it's even that's good. <laughs> um, so we want to talk about Ukraine, which you've been following very uh, closely and have been an outspoken, outspoken advocate of a strong uh, Western stance on, and I think we're earlier on also worrying about Putin and calling attention to the dangers. But I think you were just there a week ago. So we're, we're speaking just for, on August 31st. So uh, just to locate people when they see this in the future. But uh, you were just there on, on Ukraine's Independence Day in Kiev, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah, and I went to I went to Ukraine for their Independence Day, actually. And one of the reasons I went is because um, some people, I think you, you are one of those nations, uh, seem to value your Independence Day very highly. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you got your independence off some very, very fine people, but the Ukrainians got their independence off um, a totalitarian dictatorship uh, and uh, have quite rightly valued it very highly. This was their 31st uh, anniversary. And, um, you know, it's a it's it's an anniversary that's marked with uh, quite a lot of um, darkness as well, of course, because it's a six month anniversary of the latest round of invasions. I say the latest because, of course, um, Russia has been intervening in Ukraine ever since their independence 31 years ago. And of course, most famously in 2014, actually invaded Crimea and the Donbass. Uh, and uh, so has been there, but, uh, but most famously uh, this year on the 24th of February, so six months before the Independence Day, um, Russian troops tried to encircle and capture Kiev and thank God failed. Um, not, uh, not just down to their own incompetence, although that was an important element, but down to the extraordinary courage of the Ukrainian people and some fantastic leadership by President Volodymyr Zelensky. So it's been uh, it was a hell of a, a hell of a thing to be there for their for their Independence Day this year, as you can imagine. Uh, and it was very moving to be with some very, very brave people. And what struck you about their mood, their sense of their what they've done and their prospects and, and also say a word. I don't I want to look president forward mostly, but I think people forget how close run a thing it was shortly after February 24th or maybe not. But it, I feel that Everyone is sort of settled into a kind of well. Of course, they they beat back the Russians, and now it's a kind of a tough slog. But that was not an of course, was it? No, not at all. And I have to say, I mean, I you know, 
I don't think I'm alone in, uh, in fact, I know I'm not alone because I spoke to a lot of my uh, military friends who are still serving and, you know, we firmly expected uh, the Russians to win in a matter of weeks. Uh, I know the American military did as well. So this is, you know, this was a pretty universal view. Uh, in fact, so much so that uh, you may remember President Biden offered uh, a helicopter to go and get President Zelensky out. And he very famously responded, I don't need a lift, I need ammunition. Um, yeah. And uh, thank God he did, because his courage solidified the defense of Kiev. And in solidifying the defense of Kiev, he solidified the defense of the whole country. And he's been quite literally, personally, quite literally on the front line of freedom uh, ever since. And so it's been quite remarkable. So I don't think I don't think it was a foregone conclusion at all. There are various reasons I'm sure we'll come to them as to why the Russians failed, partly their own fault, partly the courage of the Ukrainians, and partly, thank God, people like Ben Wallace, who's our defence secretary, who got weapons into Ukraine, when a lot of people were either saying there's no point, they'll be defeated so quickly they won't count, or it can all wait, don't get involved. Um, and that's just people in our own system, let alone in other countries. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's been, it's been really quite something. Um, and I think, you know, being with them, this year being being in Ukraine this year being in Kiev this year was really quite moving as well because of course uh, it's been a long time uh, since your independence day was marked by anything other than uh, you know fireworks and uh, and celebrations well this year in Kiev the gun the gunpowder was real you know the uh, I found myself waking up on independence morning with the air raid sign sirens going off in Kiev at five o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, going downstairs into the bomb shelter and then feeling the earth shake. So, you know, that was um, it's not like the 4th of July, I'll tell you that much. And the mood of their government and military and and, and citizens? Oh, it's, I mean, the resolve is complete. I mean, it, there's, you know, the old expression, armies don't go to war, nations do. Armies just fight battles. Well, the whole of Ukraine is at war um, in the sense that, that if you go anywhere, you'll see unbelievable resolve from people. You know, grandparents and grandchildren are stitching camouflage netting together. Uh, young people are, you know, either actually on the front line fighting or they are mobilizing for it. Or, you know, members of parliament are going uh, fighting two days a week, sitting in parliament five days a week. Uh, organizing soup kitchens, organizing any number of different logistical elements to make sure the war effort continues. Uh, individuals are going around Europe quite literally at their own expense and voluntarily, but under instruction from the government uh, to drum up support and look for help uh, in various different ways. And I mean, it's a it, to say it's a whole nation effort uh, is to understate it. It's it's a whole nation plus uh, a lot of committed allies effort, and it's it's really inspiring to watch. So how's it going? I mean, where how do we stand? Do you think we're just about six? Well, it's almost exactly six months. Uh, uh, you were very we were on a conversation together about two and a half months ago, and you were worried about the summer. Um, obviously, that uh, if Ukraine didn't make real progress, and if we didn't do more to help them, uh, they could be in uh, not so great shape now. And then, really looking at a winter where things, and we'll talk about this, can can get tougher, both in terms of their own situation and their allies, but. Are you a little heartened? Are you are you worried, concerned? Uh, what heartens you? What concerns you, et cetera? Well, I mean, on one level, I'm heartened. You know, there's been huge numbers of weapons deliveries to Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian armed forces themselves have expanded from, depending on how you count, some sort of two, three hundred thousand um, people at arms to what's now. I mean, depending on who you ask, anywhere between 
700,000 and, and a few million um, in various different ways. I mean, these numbers, for very obvious um, reasons of national security, the Ukrainians aren't advertising the figures. And, um, and of course, it depends whether you count things like border forces and reserve battalions and how you count them and so on. But, but basically, the Ukrainians have mobilized their entire nation uh, very effectively. Uh, the weapon supplies are coming through from many allies, not, not all. Um, there's a few notable exceptions uh, that are pretty famous. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's uh, the Ukrainians are in a better position than they were when we spoke whenever it was sort of eight, 10 weeks ago. Um, the reality is they've just launched uh, their counteroffensive in Kherson, an area uh, in the southeast of the country. Um, uh, I tell you my thoughts and prayers are with their soldiers. I hope very much that they um, they achieve the ends that they, they need. Um, but the reality is this is a hard slog. And um, although I think there's no great doubt the Russians have lost, um, and, and what we're now seeing is, is the pain of defeat uh, for the Russian armed forces inside Ukraine. Um, sadly, that pain is shared and too many Ukrainians are being killed uh, in the process as well. So it's, it's, you know, I have no doubt that the end result is clear. The courage and commitment of the Ukrainian people means that Ukraine will not and cannot be a Russian satellite or a Russian colony again. Uh, and now what we need to do is to make sure that the, 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 the trauma of occupation is ended as soon as possible. And this counteroffensive, though it seems kind of impressive and uh, both in its conception and, well, it's only a couple of days in, in its execution, but that's, it's, it's not, it's unlikely you think to result in a rout of the Russians where somehow the situation is solved in six weeks, you know? I, I mean, I, 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 I'm not close enough to the front line and close enough to the military elements to to, to comment on it, I'm afraid. And, and, and you'll forgive me as a former professional soldier. Um, I, I know how easy it is to get false impressions from TV reports or from, um, you know, uh, from, from reported gossip. Um, so I'm not going to comment on that because I just don't know. Um, all I can say is it's clearly well prepared. I say that because it's got many fronts and they seem to be coordinating effectively at this point. But, you know, again, as I say, I'm not there, so I don't know. Um, but look, let's hope, right? I mean, it's, you know, the faster this war is over, not only the more Ukrainian lives are saved, but actually the more Russian lives too. So both sides should want this war over as quickly as possible. And now that the Ukrainians have demonstrated that the war will not be over by them surrendering, they've made that extremely clear, there is only one other alternative. Yeah, victory, right. Um, so what about us? What about uh, you and the UK and the US and the West in general? Uh, are we doing all that we could be, should, could and should be doing, most of what we could and should be doing, both militarily, and then I guess we, then we can get to the, some of the economic questions as well. Well, I mean, look, we're doing a, a lot more than we were doing a few years ago. I mean, you you, you touched on the fact, Bill, that um, that I'd spoken about Putin before. I mean, I took over the chairmanship. I was elected to chair the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2017, and one of the first reports that we started work on, we published the published the report in May 2018. I think it was was called Moscow's Gold, in which we exposed the threat of the threat of Russian corruption in the city of London. Now we're talking about the city of London. Actually, you could. You could talk about many other jurisdictions, sadly, including your own, uh, where dirty Russian money flows through uh, financial institutions. And it's not a threat in the sense that uh, it's a huge amount of money that could bring down the US or UK economy. That's not the threat. The threat is that it spreads poison throughout it and it corrupts all that it touches. Uh, it corrupts business people, 
people, it corrupts banks, it corrupts politicians who get involved with it, it corrupts just all of it. And the reality is we, we know that Putin has been doing this for 15 years, but sadly, you know, when I started calling it out five, six years ago, what was it, yeah, about five years ago, um, many people uh, around the world thought this was some sort of anti-Russian paranoia, uh, and that this was, you know, frankly, you know, it's minor, it's nothing, and Putin's not that bad, really. And I kept pointing out, this is a guy who, in 2007, launched a massive cyber attack on Estonia, in 2008, invaded and still occupies Georgia. And, you know, various points in recent years has shot down a civilian aircraft, uh, killing nearly 300 people over Ukraine. I mean, this is a guy who is quite literally a mass murderer. He has actually murdered many, many people around the world. He's assassinated uh, several people in the UK, including using a chemical weapon on the streets of Salisbury, a chemical weapon which his, his uh, henchmen were so cavalier about, they had in a perfume bottle, had that liquid got into the drains and got into the water supply, he could have killed quite literally thousands of people. And he clearly had absolutely no care about it at all. Uh, and we know that he's uh, triggered explosions in ammunition depots in Prague. We know that he's uh, tried to assassinate Deputy Prime Minister of Montenegro, amongst other people. You know, this is a guy who has behaved like a mafia don on the global scale, on a global scale. It's quite extraordinary how violent he's been and yet how ignored he has been as well by so many. It's been seen as a distraction or as noise. It's not. It's a genuine threat by a person who has been at war with us for the best part of 15 years. And we've been treating it as though he's a mosquito buzzing around the room. He's not, he's actually trying to bring down our system. He's trying to undermine our democracy and he's trying to erode our freedom. And we've been ignoring it. Well, you know, I've been calling it out for five years and it's only in the last six months that um, I finally, finally got the level of support that I think has been necessary uh, throughout. And so I'm, you know, I'm very sorry it has required the invasion you know the attack on Kiev to do it but I'm very glad that we've finally woken up so you know I think that this is this is a huge a huge change well let's talk about that for a minute and get back to Ukraine itself and the situation on the ground but that's important I mean how much of a mugging by reality has there been are people understanding though uh, coming to grips with it there's a you know my father used the phrase my uh, neoconservatives liberal who's mugged by reality and a friend of his said well there's an awful lot of liberals around who this is 30 40 years ago who uh sort of understand that they've been mugged by reality, but don't want to press charges. Which yeah. I thought was a nice way of capturing a certain kind of, well, yeah, Putin's worse than we thought. Or who thought he would do this? I predicted he wouldn't. But on the other hand, we can't really go crazy and we have to work with him and energy, you know, energy and, and other things. And it's a big country and China's more of a threat. And so where do you think we are on the sort of Putin question generally, as you would see uh, in terms of what you would take to be a sound understanding of it, of him and of it? Well, look, I mean, your, your, your point about they choose not to press charges, of course, it depends where you are. I mean, if, if you're in Estonia, right. um, your decision as to whether or not you wish to press charges is very different than if you're in Germany or France or Washington, right? I mean, each each, each mile you get further from the Russian border, your confidence grows. Right. Um, um, but the reality is, you know, you know, in recent years, the, it was about a decade ago, the Russians kidnapped an Estonian border guard who's offense was to be guarding the Estonian border and being on the Estonian side of it. But he was kidnapped and he's still held in a prison in Moscow. I mean, it's absolute, you know, it's criminal kidnapping. I mean, uh, if you look at what's going on in Ukraine today, um, 
thousands of children, quite literally thousands of children are being taken from Ukraine to Russia and being uh, adopted, given up for adoption uh, in, in, in and, and their, and you know, their pasts being uh, hidden and masked so that these, these young children will grow up not knowing where they're from or who they are. I mean, these, these are acts of, of, of barbarity, the like of which we haven't seen since the Second World War. I mean, it's absolutely horrific what we're seeing. So your perception on, on whether or not you're willing to re respond to it, I think, depends very much on, on where you sit. And, and for me, various wake-up calls were seeing not just Russian corruption in London, but seeing the corruption spreading to some UK institutions, seeing some banks, some lawyers, some accountants, some estate agents, you know, tolerant of a corruption that frankly is incredibly, incredibly damaging to our democracy and to our freedoms. And I'm afraid I, it's not my business, but I could point to parts of the United States and say right. the same thing there. And it's, you know, it brings me no pleasure to say it, it quite the reverse. It brings me uh, nothing but, but sadness because the reality is that, um, you know, crime festers in the dark and, and at the moment we're, we're seeing too much darkness. And do you think we're that's now much more broadly perceived, though, in the UK and, and throughout the West? And and are we, uh, you know, are we willing to come to grips with the Russian threat, so to speak? And I'm curious about what your perception is for France, Germany, some of the major. I, I yeah, the Central and Eastern Europe seem they, they they see what they see they get pretty uniformly. They get it. I guess Hungary doesn't. Well, they get it. They're just sort of half on the other side, maybe at this point. But um, I think Hungary gets it. They just yeah. choose it. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. But what about, I mean, how, because uh, that would be, I mean, I want to come back to Ukraine itself, because that's so important, but it would, it's it's certainly been a major effect, don't you think, of the invasion and of the, the reinvasion or um, uh, secondary, uh, not secondary, but second invasion uh, of February 24th to really change, seems like at least change perceptions uh, throughout NATO, changes, change the membership of NATO. I mean, how big is all that? Or is that a temporary thing and it kind of subsides and... I think, no, I think it's more than temporary. I think it's, I mean, look, the fact that Finland and Sweden have abandoned neutrality, you know, Finland's neutrality has been a thing for about a century, a little over a century. Sweden's has been something for about 200 years, right? I mean, these are, these are not sort of recent fads. These are very, very deep parts of um, the national identities of both countries. And the fact that both countries have decided, funnily enough, at the same time, uh, the time has come to abandon that position, I think is a recognition that, look, you're under threat, the like of which you haven't seen before. Uh, and there is a real danger to the Swedish people, to the Finnish people and, and to the whole of Europe. And, you know, a change in policy is required to face it. And you also see, by the way, the same same thing in, in, in responses by some of the, um, you know, some of those who've been working with Russia. I mean, very famously, Gerhard Schroeder um, was... Chancellor of Germany, of course, and is now very, very close to Vladimir Putin. He's been working with Gazprom. He's been working with various other people. Uh, and I, uh, you know, one other person who would look like they were going to be joining the same sort of racket as him was uh, the former French Prime Minister, Francois Fillon. Um, uh, and I named them both in Parliament um, as people we should consider sanctioning uh, on the grounds that they are enabling um, the uh, erosion of freedom in Europe. And in fact, personally, I'd describe them both as traitors um, uh, to themselves and, and, and to their countries. It was very interesting that very quickly Francois Fillon dropped his connection to the various Russian companies. But, um, you know, I think we should be looking 
at our own people, not just at Russian corruption, as in, you know, oligarchs, but we should be looking to our own people too and seeing who is, who's frankly betraying the United States, who's betraying the United Kingdom, who's betraying France, Germany, whoever else, uh, by enabling this erosion of democracies, this erosion of freedom and this uh, violent war of aggression against, against the Ukrainian people. Of course, there's a middle ground between betrayal, which is uh, awful, and uh, staunch uh, willingness to stand up and uh, take some pain, so to speak, economically and, and in other ways to do to help the Ukrainians fight back. And where do you think the big countries in Europe, and Germany is obviously crucial in this and has gotten the most attention, are on this? Are you reasonably confident about the next three, six months in terms of the, the, the NATO countries holding together in a reasonably strong posture? Yeah, I am. Look, I mean, the, forgive me, but the UK has quite clearly been in the lead on this. Yeah, um, yeah. And and um, many people will know I've not always been. We expect uh, no less. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know you, you do. Know, we I, Anglophiles, you know. <laughs> well, look, I've not always been full of praise for, for Prime Minister Johnson, as you know, Bill. Um, yes. I, I, we've had our division, but on this one, he's been absolutely right. I mean, he has he he has been important in the in building up that resolution uh, to face uh, you know, to, to face Putin uh, and to support the Ukrainian people. Uh, and I think he's been absolutely right on this. Ben Wallace, as I said, uh, our defence secretary was one of the first people to really see the danger and to respond to it. Uh, our uh, foreign secretary, who's very likely to be our next prime minister, Liz Truss, has been absolutely uh, essential to building up the coalition of sanctioning entities and working with other countries, predominantly the European Union, but actually others as well around the world and making sure those sanctions work and so actually the UK has led very effectively on this and other countries that have been ignored or rather not been noticed as much have been very important as well countries like Australia have been really important in supplying weapons uh, and support to Ukraine so there's been there's been countries around uh, and of course the US has been you know has supplied more money more ammunition more more of everything than anyone else and and I hope that the United States will continue to not only to do that but to do more uh, so I don't think we should belittle any of those that have done so much other countries haven't been noticed as much, but France has done an awful lot. Uh, France has supplied huge amounts of uh, artillery and uh, large amounts of, of advanced weaponry, uh, which has been really important. Um, other countries have been a little slower, um, and the obvious one in this is Germany. Um, and there's various reasons for that, which are pretty obvious, but there's some there's some changes there too. I mean, you know, Schultz uh, leads the SPD, as you know, as well as being the... Uh, uh, as well as being the chancellor. And he's managed to get German foreign policy changed pretty radically uh, in, in recent months. You know, his, uh, his uh, Zeitenwender, uh, his sort of time of change, as it were, uh, that he, he spoke about in, in February, means that he's pledged 100 billion euro to German defence spending, which is you know, it's not nothing. That's a hell of, a, that's a hell of an increase. Uh, and he's speaking about different ways of helping uh, the Ukrainian people as well. So, um, you know, that's that's not nothing. Although I did read recently um, that a Polish minister was referring to the end of Ostpolitik and the beginning of Lostpolitik. Um, and that was a there is a there is a tension now between some of those countries that border Russia or near border Russia, like Poland, it borders Belarus rather than Russia, but, you know, um, those bordering states or near bordering states and those that are further away. And there's a certain resentment between them and the level of commitment that some are showing and others could. And they'll have to show commitment at home, right? Because I mean, they will have a, they'll be, it'll be cold in the winter and uh, energy prices will go up a lot and there may have be 
I don't know, rationing and so forth of gas, and they, they let themselves get dependent on, on Russia. Unfortunately, we didn't do much to help them the other way, I will say, to be fair to them. You know, everyone beats up Germany, but it wasn't as if we were saying, you know, we were had our own issues and our own priorities. So uh, and haven't helped as much as maybe in the last year, I think we could have in terms of, uh, you know, some crash efforts to help help them find uh, substitute sources of energy. But are you, you think if we have this conversation in March and the, you know, it's getting warmer again, we will have come through the winter, okay, the German government will have come through, okay, the German public will have held, the Bundestag will have held, so forth. I, th I think so. Yes. I mean, look, I mean, Germany has been refilling its energy stocks, as you know, I think they're up, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think they're up to about 80% of gas storage for winter now. Uh, so they're getting ready, um, which is you know, normally I think they'd be at about 40, 50% at this point in the year. So, you know, they're, they're filling up very quickly. They're making sure they've got the supplies in. I mean, Russia is still playing with the gas supplies, you know, um, Nord Stream 1, that gas pipeline that connects Russia to Germany is apparently going through another few days of maintenance, which mm. seems realistically to be an excuse for Russia to sort of play with the gas supply. And, you know, yes, of course, there's more that the United States can do, but let's not pretend the United States do, is doing nothing. The United States is doing a lot. Um, I hope very much that you'll supply more uh, gas, uh, particularly, you know, in, in, in liquefied natural gas, which you have done in the past. Um, you need a bit more capacity from your terminals, but, you know, I hope you'll be able to grow that uh, and uh, you know countries like Canada I hope will be a very very important part of the energy mix in 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 years going forward because we've got to make sure that we we work together you know if you if you like this is one of those moments where we have um where we've just realized that you know for 70 80 years we were going towards a sort of greater globalization but the reality is the nation state is back and the nation state is back in ways that I don't think we uh, or rather not everybody expected um and nation states need to recognize uh, the reality that this this has implications for all of us and part of those implications are even if you're the strongest nation state like the united states um it doesn't mean that you can stand on your own it actually means that you have to help in ways that are perhaps not as traditional as they once were energy supplies are now relatively high in quite a few countries in europe germany's now uh, stocked up to some 80 odd percent of, of their gas storage um i mean that doesn't mean that prices are going to come down as dramatically as i think many would would like um but it does at least mean that we're less likely to have complete uh cutoffs but um you know germany is also preparing german ministers are also preparing the german people for supply shortages for energy saving measures and many other things so i think there is you know i think it's right to say there's concern uh but people are getting prepared yeah, that's good news, I think, and a little more optimistic. Maybe the people here, there's a little bit of glass half empty, I'd say, uh, uh, thinking among some of my friends here in, in D.C. that every time there's a little hiccup or some German politician says something that's not 100%, you know, robust, they think, oh, my God, the Europeans are falling apart. But I, I've got to say that the, they've done less falling apart and more uh, hanging tough and uh, obviously pushed on by their by their neighbors, by the Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans, and by you in the UK, they've done, they've hung tough, tougher than I would have expected. So maybe that's, maybe there really is a, a pivot in Germany. Again, there's a certain amount of skepticism here, I'd say, about the Zeitenwende and is it talk and is the money going to be real and so far forth. But um, uh, you seem to think it, it is pretty real, right? Well, I mean, the, the money's real, uh, the words are real. Um... <laughs> Supplies are real. Uh, let's now see more of that going to Ukraine. I mean, the Ukrainians are, I mean, it was one of the things that really struck me was how um, 
mocking uh, Ukrainian politicians and individuals were about German military support, um, which I can understand. Uh, but at the same time, you know, let's not forget 15, 20 years ago, Germany would have offered no support to anyone at all. So, you know, this is a this is a change. Um, is it as much of a change as I'd like to see? No, but, you know, it's a movement. And I, I hope uh, this means that Germany is being more um, realistic about the threats they face. It's it's interesting, actually. I mean, on a purely, and forgive me, this as a politician, on a purely political point, how the German Green Party uh, has been one of the leading advocates of this because of their commitment to human rights um, and how um, a lot of the uh, defence of Ukraine has come out of Germany's very, very long tradition now of uh, very strong defence of human rights. And I think that's I think that's a very positive thing to see. Well, Matt, I was going to get to this at the end, but I'll raise it now since you broadened the discussion here in a, in a very good way, an interesting way, I think. Am I crazy to think that this could be a moment where a kind of Cold War, center-left, center-right uh, coalition um, accepting our responsibilities for leadership on behalf of liberal democracy around the world and certainly against brutal aggression against liberal democracies, however much fostering it in other countries is slightly a different question. But am I crazy to think of this could be a moment that we'll look back on and, you know, as a kind of 1948, 49, 50 type moment where a new co the old coalition comes back together or a new new coalition partly comes together to deal with the threats in a kind of clear-eyed way and, and principled way I, I feel like this could be a pretty big moment 2022 or or is that fanciful? no i think you're right no i think you're right i think i think it is a big moment look i mean i think you know however you whatever element of support you think that you know we you anyone else should be giving to ukraine it's perfectly obvious that you can't ignore Putin anymore. You can't ignore Russia. You can't pretend that autocracies aren't really threatening violence against liberal democracies. You can't pretend um, that, you know, China's threats against Taiwan are just performative anymore. They, they look preparatory in the light of Ukraine. You can't, do you know what I mean? There's a whole, there's a whole number of issues that even six to 12 months ago, you could have said, well, you know, a major state on state conflict is so unlikely, a real invasion. Sure, they may try to undermine, they may try to corrupt, they may try to infiltrate, but they wouldn't invade, would they? And, and a lot of people were saying that on the 23rd of February. In fact, some Ukrainians I was talking to were saying that on the 23rd of February. Um, I don't think anybody's saying that now about any country. The, the reality is that state on state warfare um, I'm afraid, sadly, is a reality again, and 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 I think that's a big change because I think it's a it's a huge wake up moment for even those uh, who thought that we should be doing deals with dictators uh, in various different ways, and now realizing that actually that may be harder than they thought. Uh, you know, there's it's been a while now that some of us have been calling out the fact that you can't feed the crocodile; the crocodile gets hungrier with the eating. Uh, and the reality is that's what Putin has done over the last 20 years. That's what she would do. That's what plenty of other dictators around the world would do. Yeah, the other crocodiles also see the success of one crocodile. That has its own right. its own, its own implications. You know, you mentioned uh, the UK's leadership and Australia and others. One, I'm just curious, this is somewhat more, not a technical question really, but a more, I, I'm struck that on the one hand, this is a success story for NATO, I think you'd have to say, that's come yeah. together quite well and admitted to new uh, members that will be excellent contributors, I think. But it feels to me, and I talked with someone from one of the countries who said this, that there's a huge amount of coordination going on, but a lot of it's going on in informal groupings or sub all the 
30 members of NATO. I mean, it's not as if Brussels is the center of, I don't don't think, of organization. And that's maybe a good thing, incidentally, that it's sort of what happens when you're in a new historical moment. New things, new people get together, and maybe it's not formalized at first, and it could be formalized. Am I right about that, though? Is is it sort of... I mean, I go back to the joke in Moscow at the moment that's being told in Moscow, where Putin uh, goes and sees his generals and says, um, you know, how's this war against NATO going? (laughs) And the general says, well, um, we've been at war for six months. We've lost 20,000 soldiers, 1,000 artillery pieces, 100 aircraft. You know, we um, are being pushed back on various fronts and it's costing us uh, hundreds of men a day. And what about NATO? Oh, well, NATO hasn't entered the war yet. You know, and, and I think it's I think it's actually a huge success of NATO that what is what NATO is enabling is an enormous amount of bilateral cooperation, none of which is actually direct NATO versus uh, Russia conflict, which means that at no stage can Russia claim that this is a NATO operation because it isn't. It's a Ukrainian operation enabled with bilateral support that happens to be um, supplied by NATO member states. What NATO has done is it means that if you get a French artillery piece, you can fire German ammunition through it. If you get an American you know, uh, machine gun, you can put British ammunition into it. So it's the interoperability that NATO has prepared, which means that the level of support we're giving is a multiplication of the efforts of individual nations. And I think NATO has done a really good job on that. And I have to say, contrary to some other multilateral organizations, NATO's um, caution in putting itself front and center, but instead enabling others, I think has demonstrated an extreme uh, adeptness of touch by Jens Stoltenberg. uh, And I think uh, has been really very impressive. And that's sustainable. There's no reason NATO, qua NATO, has to be on the front line. And yeah. Well, I mean, you know, NATO is an enabling organization to prepare others, you know, to enable to enable us to operate as allies across different areas. Uh, I mean, the only sort of specifically NATO element is the is the is the is the NATO Article Five that was only ever once invoked, and that was after nine eleven. You know, other than that. Um, NATO can coordinate intelligence sharing, but actually quite a lot of that we're doing directly. Um, it can enable, um, you know, can enable uh, cooperation in different ways. It means that, of course, we don't need a special agreement. Or you don't need a special agreement to fly weapons and ammunition over French and German and British airspace or Dutch or Danish airspace to get it into Poland. You just do it. You're a NATO ally. You can do it. No problem about it at all. And the you know the Ukrainians and the Poles can can sort out the delivery from there. So you know, NATO is enabling a lot of things. The fact that it hasn't put a stamp on it and claimed it, uh, I think, demonstrates, frankly, a, a rather mature attitude to the alliance, rather than rather than the need to posture forward, and demonstrates the strength and the capability of the alliance too. Yeah, and the government official I was talking to from a Central European country said there's a ton of multilateral. It's, it's neither bilateral nor NATO, but multilateral cooperations of like-minded or like-positioned or neighboring nations in terms of coordinating arms deliveries, whether you guys take the lead on this or we'll take the lead on that, and a kind of healthy coordination and multiplication of efforts that's neither 
let's have another meeting at the NATO headquarters with 30 people sitting around a table on the one hand, or entirely just bilateral Ukraine to Poland, Ukraine to Czech, Ukraine to exactly. Uh, so that's impressive if that's the case, right? That would be, I mean, for all the talk of a, oh, Europe's terrible and NATO's terrible, it's all falling apart and all, it seems like it's pretty, pretty robust here, pretty, and pretty intelligently robust, if you know what I mean. Yeah, look, I mean, I think this is a mature way of dealing with an alliance. I mean, you know, some alliances feel that unless you put, you know, the brand of the organization on everything, you're not doing anything. Well, I think, you know, I think I think in a mature relationship, you you don't need to own it. You know, it's what's that? What's the old? Was it Harry Truman? I can't remember. One of your presidents who said it's amazing what you can get done if you don't yeah. care who takes credit. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's uh, that's one of those great lines. Uh, no, I, I think the don't you think also that the the example of countries working together under this broad rubric might be applicable to many other situations and also elsewhere in the world. I mean, I 20 yeah. years ago, maybe you were involved in some of these conversations, there was talk, well, how can we really confront China without an Asian NATO? But we don't need an Asian NATO. What we do need is a fair a lot of cooperation between key That's nations, which can be done under different rubrics and different right. sort of coalitions of the willing, I guess, right? I think that's right. I mean, look, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't undermine or belittle what NATO is doing either. I mean, you know, NATO has created no. norms and established the, 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 the diplomatic agreements, which mean that all these things are interoperable. And that's not you know, that's that's not nothing. That's a, yeah, that's, that's important. Right. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah, that's important. Over 60, 70 years. Right. So so that that is important. Um, do you need to do those? Could you do those in different ways? Sure. You, yeah, you can. But but it is important. I mean, I think what's interesting is as i say it's the change from it's the change from the very obvious multilateralism of the 1950s and 60s and 70s to um, a return to an, a form of nationalism and i don't want to overstate that but to a, a form of identity with the nation state that has that means that international organizations the good ones are more enablers and the bad ones are the ones that sort of you know seem to be trying to replace um, nation states and bad i i don't mean it, i'm not trying to make a moral term i'm trying to i'm trying to make the ones that are, the ones that are more successful are the ones that are enabling and the ones that are less successful are the ones that are challenging uh the nation states or the nation states feel are challenging them so it's a uh, it's interesting how nato i think has maintained its legitimacy um, by being an enabler not an actor uh, and, and i think that's a very powerful thing to do and i think one of the things that we're going to have to think about over the next you know, take your pick five ten twenty years is seeing how uh, we think about that again, because it's worth remembering that these organizations, when we first created them, you know, when the WTO or the IMF or whatever it was, were created in those, those you know, post-war days, they were created in many ways as partnership organizations, as enabling organizations, yeah. democracies, free countries and rule of law states to work together. And they were, they were you know, they were set up quite deliberately as responses to the communist bloc in its various different guises, the Comintern or the Soviet bloc, or whatever it happens to be in whichever guise it was. And they were, they were created not to replace the nation states. They were created to enable countries that had very often only recently rediscovered their liberty. I mean, you know, countries like France and Italy didn't join the World Trade Organization in order to be subsumed into a greater whole. Um, they just literally fought for their independence against uh, an occupying uh, uh, empire. Um, and I think finding ways in which nation states can work together and have enabling organizations, I think, is, is going to be the real challenge of the next sort of 20, 30 years of our diplomacy and how the United States, how the UK, how Canada, 
but also how countries like Nigeria and Indonesia sit within that, I think is going to be hugely defining because at the moment, the challenges we're either seeing, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Putin style imperial colonialist project, which is what he's trying to do in Ukraine and Georgia and to a certain extent in the Baltic states, or we're seeing a form of debt trap diplomacy from, from China. Um, we've got to respond and we've got to respond in a different way. And I think the way we respond best is by recognizing as we do in Ukraine that actually sovereign people want sovereignty. Uh, you know, they want freedom. They want, you know, they want exactly the same things you guys fought for uh, on a couple of occasions against <laughs> us uh, and that we fought for in order to protect our own freedoms in, in you know, the last century. I and mean, this is not, you know, not unusual and, and other countries around the world want it too, quite rightly. You know, and I think I think it's kind of a that you think of a, we look back and we think that NATO was more homogeneous and that those kinds of international organizations wish to be more homogeneous than they than they did. I mean, some people wanted them to be more, but of course, NATO. I mean, we thought we were the only nuclear power. We, the whole point of NATO was don't worry, Britain and France, you don't need nuclear weapons. Well, thank you, but Britain and France decided. You know what? I think we just prefer to have our France. We'll of course, that right went now. off. Yeah, yeah, it will take, yeah. France in the 60s, then, of course, is famously with de Gaulle, uh, but also many others. Germany had a very different situation because of the war, because of uh, its history, in terms of its military commitments uh, to NATO, West Germany at the time, then France, and then Britain. So I think this kind of intelligent, I don't know what you'd call it exactly, so, so nation-state-specific multilateralism has always been there among the better yeah. Uh, thinkers in the West and, and better practitioners, really. And, and you're right, that that's, it's a good way of formulating it that gets us out of the trap of either everything has to be, you know, UN-like, I don't know what uh, everyone agree, you know, I mean, it's fine if 180 nations do want to agree on some things and some things you should have World Health Organization, so it's better if you could have common, you know, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, but but in other cases, the, the more these regional and uh, ad hoc approaches seem especially in national security, I would say, right, to, to be more. Right, well, I mean, but I'd say not just in national security. I mean, the interesting thing is, of course, the underpinning of national security is is the economic freedoms that, you know, the economic strength that we get through, through frankly, through freedom. I mean, you know, there's a reason people fight for freedom, right? I mean, it works, it just does. And, uh, and it's, you know, it's perfectly clear to me that when we fight for, 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 for economic cooperation, for free trade, for, you know, the kind of things that, we embedded into the early days, the very early days, we embedded in, in an embryonic state into the World Trade Organization. Uh, you know, it's absolutely essential for growing freedom. You know, we we didn't grow the WTO in order to make Western Europe and the United States and Canada rich. We did it in order to guard our freedom against Soviet encroachment. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was a national security project, project, the WTO initially. I mean, you know then became something else, of course, but those early days, that's what it was. Uh, and I think that, you know, we should be looking at economic cooperation in the same way as ways of extending the bounds of freedom, extending, you know, economic liberty as part of personal liberty. And, and so I think, you know, when we look at things like CPTPP, or when we look at, um, you know, different forms of ways in which I hope that we're going to be doing trade deals between the United States and the United Kingdom, you know, we shouldn't be looking at it as a sort of zero sum game. It's not. If we get it right, not only do we both prosper in economic terms, but we both prosper in the sense that we uh, we defend our own liberty more deeply. Uh, and when we bring in countries and I'll use the same two, uh, just as examples, Nigeria and Indonesia, 
you know, we're not just helping three, four hundred million people in Nigeria and similar, maybe more in Indonesia to prosper. We're actually ensuring that the principles of the rule of law, the principles of personal freedom, the principles of liberty that you know we value uh, are embedded more deeply in other parts of the world. And that effectively extends the bounds of freedom and, and guards the British and, and, and American people more strongly. And that's well said. I feel I'm sure you will continue to say that and say it even more visibly and uh, across borders, because I do feel, I mean, I think Putin's invasion and the reaction to it has done a lot of uh, well-earned damage, in, uh, in my view, to a kind of America first demagoguery here in the U.S. On the other hand, I would say the Biden administration hasn't and I don't, they've got a lot of other things to worry about, uh, though they've, I think, behaved quite well in this crisis. They haven't really articulated what you just articulated. And in fact, on some issues because of political politics and other things, they haven't, you know, been as forward leading, I would say, on trade at all. They haven't removed most of Trump's trade tariffs, even on Europe, I don't think, right? So kind of crazy that we have tariffs against our allies who are all trying to help Ukraine and, and, and same some other areas, immigration and so forth. So I think articulating a, the kind of vision you just did uh, it's not something that President Biden has particularly done, sort of unlike Truman and Atchison, I suppose, and Marshall, you know, famously. But um, I mean, is... your, your father uh, was not in any way anti-American, but his anti-protectionism was indeed a form of America first. He wouldn't have put it that way because of the loaded context of those words, of course. But it's a pro-Americanism. And, you know, I represent a community in West Kent, right? I represent uh, about 80,000 electors, about 100,000 souls who you know, vote left, right, whatever, for the advantage of Kent, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, and their family across, uh, you know, across the world. And and the reason, the reason I am an advocate for this level of cooperation is quite literally, because I think it is fundamentally in the interests of the British people, you know, and I, I, I do put my country first. I think that is the job of elected representatives, actually. I mean, I, you know, I do think it is my job to champion my community uh, and my country first. I think that is literally what I've been elected to do. But I think I do it most effectively when I expand the bounds of freedom. It makes us safer. You know, I mean, it's it's a huge luxury for us. It's an even bigger luxury for you. But I mean, you guys have an ocean on either side. We have uh, 20 miles of sea between us and France, right? I mean, but what NATO has done, what cooperation has done, what free trade has done is it's pushed the boundary of British liberty uh, thousands of miles to the east and thousands of miles to the south. Now, at the very least, the very least, that's a hell of a warning. That's a hell of a tripwire, right? I mean, if, you, if yeah. you're setting out claims to guard your, your perimeter, you pushed your perimeter out a hell of a long way. But actually, it does more than that, because actually it deepens the economic strength of your country. And it means that you're better able to defend yourself. And, you know, anyway. so it's a I think it's, you know, I, I, I don't think that um, free trade is an act of generosity. I think it, it, it's an act of selfishness, actually. It's, a, you know, by building up liberty, it's a bit like building up public health. You know, you don't want people dying of pandemics on your border. It's just bad for you. <laughs> it's really yeah. bad for you. And, and, and to be a little more forward-leaning, perhaps, than you're being, I mean, uh, you don't want to live in a world where even if you could somehow put up fantastic barriers against the pandemics and, you know, just watch you people die in your border, that is not attractive. It's not sustainable, ultimately, and it's not uh, worthy, really. So, um, no, I, I think you've, you've said this very well, though. So let's come back maybe to, to 
Ukraine and, and the situation the short term, because that, that was, uh, I think, a very helpful though digression on the what oh, we yeah. feel, how how we should think more broadly. Because I really do think it's been. A, I mean, some of us have tried to articulate it a little bit, and you know, articles and so forth, and uh, or just conversations. But uh, no one politician here is really. If John McCain were still alive, honestly, I think he would be saying what you're saying and and trying He's to say head. it. And, well, that's good, and trying to say it in a more you know in speeches and a more formal way to really get the doctrines out there. I'm sure you can you can pick up his mantle but so more concretely what 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 should we look for the next three six months what worries you the most what would if you saw something you would say oh my god we really need to, to you know to we're not doing we're not uh, uh doing what we should be doing what 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 are the opportunities perhaps let's just give give us I'm a short-term prospect short medium-term prospect the reality is that the the only country with the industrial base capable of sustaining this level of uh, weapons consumption is the United States. So we need to make sure. Forgive me, but I mean, you know, no, no, please. But are you? I'm not so confident that we have that base that we quite once had. I and mean, people talk our weapons are wonderful, I guess, and you know they seem to be helping a lot, and it's great that we're sending them over. But I've talked to people here, experts here, you know them too, who are a little worried that we're actually, it's not, we don't have the Cold War type, multiple, let alone World War II type, you know, multiple uh, lines of uh, production and so forth. You'll have production lines that put every other country in the world to shame, frankly. So, And you, you know, think you, they're okay? I mean, we're, they're sufficient. We're not going to be... Look, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the complexities of the US and military industrial capabilities, but you 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 have the capabilities to maintain uh, the war supplies that Ukraine needs to maintain its liberty uh, and therefore to guard our, our borders. So, you know, frankly, you matter uh, and you matter an awful lot. Secondly, I think um, it's worth thinking about a few other things, right? I mean, you know, a country can't stay at war like this and maintain an economy. Uh, I mean, you just, <laughs> you just can't, right? Um, and so those countries uh, that aren't able to supply um, weapons should be thinking very seriously about loan agreements. And, you know, we paid off our martial debt. I think I'm right in saying uh, under the Blair administration, it took us 70 or 80 years to pay off the debt that we accrued to you uh, in the Second World War. But I have to say, I was very glad when we paid off the last penny uh, and it was money well spent. Uh, and I'm sure the Ukrainians will feel the same. Uh, and we must make sure that where we can, we're generous and where we can't, um, we, uh, we we make the loans as long as possible because I think that's really important. But look, I also think the next thing to do is, is to help in other ways because the reality is that the Ukrainians have gone from literally sending every person to the border to guard, you know, to, to, to fight, to now going into a stage where they need to sustain operations over a much longer basis. And that means changing the way that you do supplies and repairs and training and you know any number of different things that go go from an army to being a sort of a best effort engagement to a sustainable uh, engagement and that's that's difficult right i mean that means that i think the next stage that we need to make sure we're helping with is is logistics it's training it it's those elements that turn you know a, a quick fighting force into a sustainable uh, army and that's difficult to do. Uh, it's difficult to do because it requires very, very hard decisions in prioritization that we can't make for them. But President Zelensky has demonstrated huge capability in strategic thinking. So I'm not concerned about that. What we need to be there to do is when people want to be trained, when we, you know, when they're looking for assistance in different ways, we're offering to do it. Now, the United Kingdom is already doing a lot of it in Salisbury, as you may know, on Salisbury Plain. Um, and so there's not, you know, we can demonstrate that we can do it, but but there are other countries that should be helping too, and I and I hope they'll step up. 
And so you mentioned President Zelensky again. I feel like he got a huge amount of attention, deservedly, in that first two, three months, and now it's become sort of more routine. And but I feel like people haven't quite appreciated what he did. Or maybe I'm, you know, that I mean, is it? It's really is it not? A, you're a student of political leadership, and I mean, is it not a pretty extraordinary example for us? And and are there? Would you say a word about if I'm right? Are there what lessons do you take from it? Well, look, I mean, I, you don't need me to tell you that there is a long history of um, leaders of countries who, when the country comes under pressure, they jump on the first plane out with their families and a couple of million dollars and are never seen again. I mean, the most recent example is Ashraf Ghani, uh, the one-time president of Afghanistan, who basically fled uh, before uh, a Taliban army that, I mean, much weaker than the Russian army that faced uh, Zelensky. And Zelensky didn't run. And, you know, Zelensky would very reasonably have been terrified that his family were going to be killed um, and he himself would have been killed. Uh, you know, we know that the Russians had sent in death squads to try and catch and kill various members of the Ukrainian leadership team, including Zelensky and his family. Uh, and for those first few weeks and months, probably still today, actually, for as far as I know, I mean, for all I know, sorry, um, he was having to sleep in, you know, snatched moments and move around the whole time and you know with bodyguards who he trusted and you know, be very very careful never to be caught anywhere you know but it, but he still he did it he stayed and he demonstrated something that i think you know you mentioned him but senator mccain and others uh, have demonstrated uh, at various points president reagan demonstrated it various others have demonstrated it courage in leadership matters it can be game-changing it can be inspiring you know, Winston Churchill demonstrated it for us most famously, and others have demonstrated it other times, but it's it's it really can be game-changing. President Zelensky demonstrated. I think I think we we underestimate the importance of President Zelensky's courage to the shape of the world as it will be in 10 years' time if we don't recognize the effect that having Putin victorious in Ukraine and Belarus would have had on countries like Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, uh, and the pressure that that would have put on NATO and therefore on European uh, liberty. I think we underestimate that at our peril. No, I think that's very well said. And I mean, the courage plus competence, apparently, in, in, in yeah, leadership absolutely. and high level of competence, you know, that's that's that, that's awfully important to people. Again, yeah, you, it happens. And then, of course, one thinks, well, of course, that's how it was going to go, but it, it didn't have to go the way. No, and you're... you're uh, maybe we'll close on this. I mean, you were such a critic of the withdrawal of, uh, from Afghanistan. I mean, think of what the world looks like if if Ukraine falls. I mean, you know, Zelensky just doesn't make the right decisions, or the, or the Russians make better decisions, and the air, they take the airport near Kiev, and then it goes, and the whole thing. Well, is we up. make the wrong decisions, and we don't support him. Very much so. So, I mean, what is that? What is a world in which Afghanistan? We've pulled out of Afghanistan and watched the Taliban take that back over. And then six months later, uh, Ukraine goes under, or part of it, a large part of it, let's say, to uh, a brutal invasion from Putin. I mean, that's a very different world from the one we're looking at now, where unfortunately Afghanistan is still in, ter is in terrible shape. But maybe Afghanistan was the end of a, a period of, of weakness and retrenchment, not the not the harbinger of a future, right? I mean, really, when you think about it, I get to come back to the degree to which 2022 could really be a 
a pivot point, uh, not just for Ukraine, though most importantly, obviously for them, and and they deserve most of the credit and most of the um, you know uh, all honor to them. But uh, but really for all of us, is that don't you think? I mean, think of what it looks like if, if Afghanistan is followed by a bad. But both failure there, but you're absolutely right. To focus. But what if we just don't step up and we're sort of still you know, desperately trying to negotiate with Putin three weeks after he's you know, started the war and so forth? Yeah. Look, I mean, Bill, I mean, when the point I was making in that speech I gave in August last year was that it's not just Afghanistan, right? There are, you know, the fall of Afghanistan led countries like Russia to believe that we weren't serious anymore which is one of the reasons he invaded Ukraine. He didn't think we were serious. He didn't think we'd do anything. He didn't think we'd react. And had President Zelensky not demonstrated that extraordinary courage and had Ben Wallace not got the weapons in early so that the Ukrainians were able to defend, I think you know he might have been right. I mean, that's the scary thing. He might have been right. right. Uh, as it turns out, he was wrong. Thank God. Uh, but he was wrong. And because he was wrong, Instead of countries around the world looking at Afghanistan as they did and thinking, hang on a minute, why do a deal with the Americans? Why do a deal with the Brits? Why do a deal with the free world? Why not just do it straight with China? Why not do it straight with Russia? They're going to win anyway. You know, the guys in Washington and London aren't serious. They're soft. Might as well go for the the guys who actually mean it, who will stay, who will endure, who will stick by you, who may punish you, but who will at least be with you. You know, we could have done that. But instead, uh, you know, what happened was that the... Ukrainian situation meant that you know people are now looking and saying actually maybe these guys are serious, and so I, I think it's I think it's worth remembering that nothing succeeds like success and nothing fails like failure, right? I mean, it, and and it's you know Ukraine's success means that we're in a very different position today than we would have been, uh, you know, had had this not happened. And and I think for countries around the world, countries we're not talking about, you know, the erosion that that could have brought into. Um, the stability of a Western alliance, and I use that term very broadly. I include countries like you know South Korea and Japan in it, but you know, a liberal alliance, if you like, but it doesn't mean the same thing in American as it does in English. We're, we're going to um, revitalize the word liberal here too. Don't uh, that's, well, that's think, our next project here. Yeah, it doesn't mean communist. It doesn't mean socialist. <laughs> it's, it's new freedom, hence the word, hence the origins of the term. But you know, the alliance of free states, maybe that's a better way of putting it, uh, would have been eroded. Maybe not in the heartlands, maybe not, maybe not, you know, in places like Canada, but but in places on the edge, places that are teetering, places that are trying to decide how to shape their policies for the next 10, 15 years to make sure that their people are safe and 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 uh, and able to, you know, survive. I think, you know, the erosion of liberty in Europe would have been a hell of a, a hell of an indicator of failure. And so I think it's, you know, I think we shouldn't underestimate the extraordinary courage that Zelensky showed, but also the extraordinary debt that we all owe him as free people. You know, we as free people owe to the Ukrainians. They're fighting for A good note to end on, but a very appropriate one, because I think you really helped in addition to obviously very helpful analysis of, of the situation on the ground, really pull the camera back, uh, so to speak, pull the aperture back and whatever the metaphor is, uh, and and opened it and uh, really in a very concrete and uh, I found helpful way, really show what's at stake here. It's not just the rhetoric about, oh, you know, it's obviously we should help them. They're being treated. The Russians have been, Putin's army has been brutal and so forth, but uh, really that this could be a real moment for, for the 21st century, not just for, and not just for, uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine and Russia. So, um, Tom, thank you for uh, all you've done uh, in Britain, but thank you for joining for joining us today, joining me today. 
Bill, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for making time. No, my, my, my pleasure. And thank you all for joining us on Conversations.